And uh, the subject is authority issues, because Paul here in this chapter is going to be talking about the government and how we relate to that. And especially with Super Saturday being last week, this is a rather pertinent issue, I would think, for many of us. Of course, as always, we need to remember that when we look at chapter 13 of Romans, it's part of the larger book of Romans, right? And the whole book is a single book surrounding a single theme, which says, I am not ashamed of the good news, because it's God's power to save every believer, first the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I hope that as you guys are coming back and and hearing this over and over again, that someday, if months down the road, someone says to you, what is Romans about? You can at the very least be able to say, I know it's that the theme is somewhere in Romans chapter 1, and look and find this, recognize this, and say, this is what the entire book is about. I hope that you can learn that. If you walk away from all these messages remembering that, then, well, at least that's something, right? All right. So we are working our way through Romans. It's all surrounding a single theme. And Romans 13, within that theme, is talking about living under the government. And you might look at this and say, where is this coming from? This is just shot out of left field, right? This has nothing to do with everything else that's been we've been talking about? And I would say, absolutely not. This is very much related to what Paul is talking about, and it relates to us not just with regard to the government, but in a whole lot of other areas as well. Specifically, let's look at Paul. When Paul was writing this, he wasn't writing to people in Rock, Michigan, of course. He was writing to people who lived in Rome, Christians in Rome, the center of the most powerful empire at that time and place. And the Roman people themselves, they had their own pantheon, multiple gods that they worshipped. But what they also did is they didn't just rule Rome, they also ruled Greece. They ruled over the Phoenicians, they ruled over the, the Persians they, uh, to an extent um, into their area. They ruled over the people of Egypt, and each of these people groups had their own pantheons of gods, their own sets of gods that they believed in. And Rome wasn't really interested in making everyone follow their culture. They just wanted the efficiency. They wanted the money and the resources coming in. So they set up a religious and a cultural norm within the empire, which basically said, you have your gods, we have our gods, worship your gods however you want, just mind your own business. And don't step into anyone else's lives and tell them that they're wrong with the way that they want to worship their gods. And the Christians came in and they started asserting that there is one true God and all the others were false. And the government responded by stripping believers, Christians specifically, of their rights and their liberties. So that Christians now were at a point They were struggling to live in a world where the government was increasingly hostile, specifically to Christianity. Do you think maybe there's something we can learn about this here today in America? Maybe any application to where we're at? I think so. 
Let's dive in. We're going to jump right into Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God's appointments, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. Do you desire not to fear authority? Do good, and you'll receive its commendation. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for it doesn't bear the sword in vain. It's God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. One thing that I want us all to be able to get straight right here at the beginning is the question, is the answer to the question, who has all authority? Right? I want us to be able to answer that question. So instead of me answering that question, I'm actually going to ask that question to you. And I will let you guys together give a verbal response. Let's see if you, you are in agreement about this question. So I'm going to ask you, who has all authority? Ah, oh, man, you got that right. That was a close one. Pitter-patter of my heart. I'm really glad that you guys know that. Awesome. God is the one that has all authority. And what God does with you and with me and in the world is He grants each of us limited authority to choose some things, but not to choose others. It's not that God gives us complete free will to do whatever we want, because, for instance, I can't stand up on top of this roof and jump off and choose not to get hurt, right? I can't put my hand into a fire and choose not to get burned, right? There's some things I can choose, but there's some things I can't choose. So I don't have full free will. On the other hand, God allows us to make choices. He tells us that He wants us to do some things, but He allows us to to choose things that He doesn't want or to choose to, to follow Him and to love Him. So what God is really doing is He is giving us limited authority. Now let's go back to that first question. Who has all authority? God. What that means is if God does actually have all authority, that means that every authority on the earth, from the authority of the father or the mother over their children to the authority of um, principals and teachers in schools to the authority of the government, all authority is given by God. And all of that authority given by God has responsibilities and consequences. Government actually started all the way back in the flood. I promise I won't walk you all the way from the flood all the way through today, okay? But before the flood, every individual person did whatever they decided they wanted to do. And it was only after the flood that God said, well, first of all, he said, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to flood the whole world. And second of all, he said, hey, guys, have you, uh, have you tried out um, meat? It's pretty good. I recommend it. Uh, and, and thank God for letting us eat meat. Um, but after he said that, he gave people the authority to take life for murder. Specifically in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. 
which is the basis for government. That's pretty much the ultimate response of authority that a person can have over someone else. The government was created in order to judge and in order to punish. And with that authority, they gave them consequences along with that. We look at the government and we say if you're, there are things that they should do, things that they shouldn't do, and we know that yes, there is corruption that happens, but we also have confidence that if God has all authority, that one day he will hold accountable everyone that he has given authority. That means, gives us hope for government. That also puts me kind of in my place as a father, for instance, or as a, as a husband. I, I have to use my authority really well and really careful because I'm going to be held accountable for that. So, that's the origin of government. Paul also speaks to the role that we have under the authority of those that we have are placed under, such as the government. What is our role? First is to seek justice within the proper means. Not necessarily to go out and overthrow the government and create chaos and anarchy and riots and such, but the means that we have within the government. The government allows for free speech. The government allows for elections, and we are called on to take part in that. But, on the other hand, we are also called on, as believers, to obey the laws that are placed over us and to not act in any way that the government can condemn. Now, if you're wondering, well, what about laws that I really don't like or, or laws I disagree with? Or what if the government changes its mind and places a law that I don't like? Well, what happens with Rome? Do you think Rome was a perfect government when Paul wrote this letter? No. Rome was actually a government that was entirely unjust to Christians. They were killing them and murdering them. And what did the apostles say? Did the apostles say, let's start a revolution that overthrows the Roman Empire? No, they didn't. They didn't revolt. Instead, they said, follow the law. Love your neighbors. And make sure that if you're convicted, the only thing you can be convicted of by the government is loving Jesus. And with those three steps, Rome was converted in 300 years. Let's keep going. Verse 6. For this reason you also pay... <coughs> Taxes. For the authorities are God's servants devoted to governing. Pay everyone what's owed. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and if there's any other commandment, are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if we establish that the government is a... If we say that government is just a human authority, completely separate from God... God has this authority over here, and people have their authority over here, and there's, there's no real connection to the two. What does that mean for us? If that were so, our mindset would rightly be that we should only obey as much as is needed to, get, to not get in trouble, right? And that is a good start. You, don't, you obey enough that you don't get in trouble. That's, that's kind of the minimum standard is the only thing, though. And there's a problem with that. If I am working in that mindset, or let's say I'm looking at my kids, and I say to one of my kids, 
don't hit your sister or don't hit your brother. And then I walk out of the room and I come back and, and one of my kids screams and says, so-and-so hit me. And the other person says, I didn't hit them. I just pushed them really hard. Right? What do you say? You say, well, okay, you followed the letter of the law, but you are missing the point, weren't you? You were doing just enough to make sure you could get away with as much as you could. If that is our mindset, then I would say that's not going far enough as Christians as to what we need. Paul gives us one standard, and that's to owe no one anything. Pay the taxes you should, the revenue, the respect, the honor that you should. But then Paul takes us and says, I want you to go beyond that first step. I call you to a higher standard, and that is to love. This is a law that is above every law, even the law of Moses, which is the highest law given by God, but is the law of Moses is not the highest standard. Just, just think about it. Paul lists four different kinds of sins. Adultery, murder, stealing are some of those. Now those are some of the worst things you can do, right? You don't murder. You just don't do it. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery. But you can avoid doing those couple things and still hurt others pretty badly, can't you? You can be a pretty toxic person that, that hurts everyone that you're around without doing those things, can't you? You can say, I'm following the law of Moses and still be not a great person. And that's what happens when we have a mindset of trying to say, I don't want to break the law, but I'm going to get as close to that edge as I can without going over. When we have that mindset, we're missing the point. Paul says it's not enough just to do that, where I have to tell you every single detail of what you should or should not do in every single aspect of your lives. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't go that route. Instead, what Paul does is he gives us one simple principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, run after that as hard as you can. You can never love your neighbor truly seeking their best too much. And Paul says love fulfills the law. If you fulfill the law, are you going to commit adultery? Are you going to kill? Are you going to steal? Are you going to covet? No. Love fulfills the law, and in fact it goes beyond the law. Because if I truly love you, I'm not only not going to kill you, you know, if I see you're hungry, I might give you some food. If I see that you're thirsty, I might give you something to drink. Paul gives us a standard that is much higher than any law the government can do. So if you guys are people that decide, I am going to actively pursue loving my neighbor as myself, is there any way that the government really can condemn you? I would say no. Follow those two standards and you will be doing really well. Let's keep going. Do this because we know the time, that it's already the hour for us to wake from sleep, for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. The night has advanced toward dawn, the day is near, so then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. There you go. Let us live decently, as in the daytime. 
Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in discord and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. See, what Paul is saying here is he is giving us the perspective that we need to have. The proper perspective for how we live in this world. And those are the imminent return of Jesus and thinking of ourselves as in a battle using weapons of darkness or weapons of light. First, let's take a look at imminent perspective. And we'll think, for instance, about an event that's coming up with someone that you, you are looking forward to seeing, like with, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Now, when I met Tamara, and I went out on my first date with her, let me tell you, I, I didn't dress nearly as, as nicely as I do now. Tamara has, has helped me to look a whole lot better than I used to look. But I'll tell you, when I went out on that first date, I actually like brushed my hair off to the side with my hands. I brushed my teeth a little bit extra, and I put on my nice T-shirt instead of my raggedy T-shirt. I wanted to look nice, right? What happened, though, on the, the day when I proposed to her? On the day when I proposed to her, I actually set things up. Uh, it was our year anniversary, so that was my excuse to get her to dress up and me to dress up. I took her on a date. I actually had uh, some friends go out and hang out at a spot on a lake where you can see a sunset as it was coming. I was like, I wanted to do all that sappy stuff. I wanted the, tam- the best chance of making Tamara say yes before she could actually think about it. And, um, uh, and I did that. I reserved the spot. I did the thing. I asked her to marry me, brought out the ring, and she said yes. And then what happened on the day that we got married, though? On the day that we got married, that's when we had planned that day out together, months in advance. And we set things up. We had a nice meal for all of everyone who came. And everyone else was wearing nice clothes too. And Tamara was wearing this beautiful dress. And I actually bought a suit for the occasion so that I could wear it over the long term. I don't fit into it anymore, but the idea was there. And I liked it. And it was good. We set things up and we knew exactly what we were going to say. It was a beautiful ceremony. We loved it. Because we were just so excited to see each other, to be with each other for those special occasions. Paul tells us the return of Christ will come. One day Jesus will come back to this earth physically. He will reclaim his right to rule from all the governments around us and he will hold everyone who has held a position of authority accountable so that justice is done perfectly, and everyone praises God. You're worried about what's going on in North Korea or China or like the the people, the Boko Haram, and what they're doing against Christianity down in Africa. You're worried about all that stuff. Yes, we should be, but on the other hand, we can have confidence that one day Jesus will come and he will make all things right so that everyone will praise God for perfect justice being carried out. I am looking forward to that day. I don't know about you, I am. Also makes me a little worried, again, since I am placed in a position of authority in several ways, but it also makes me so excited. Governments were given authority by God to make and enforce laws. And they will one day be held accountable for that. And guess what? We are placed underneath the authority. Some of us 
has kids underneath parents, some of all, all of us living in our country underneath the government that we are underneath, and our one day we will be held accountable for how we responded to the authority that we were placed under. What's your mindset when you think about how you respond to authority? Do you choose to obey as little as possible so you don't get in trouble? Or do you choose to go above and beyond what's asked in love? Christ's imminent return doesn't mean that he will come at any moment. People have been saying for 2,000 years, oh, Jesus is going to come back, is going to for sure come back within my lifetime or within the next 10 years. People have been saying that for 2,000 years. Imminent return doesn't mean he will come back any moment. It means he can come back at any moment. There is nothing stopping Jesus from coming now. That would have been cool, wouldn't it? There is nothing stopping him, though, is the thing. He can come back at any time. And Paul says... When you're at nighttime and you're in the middle of the night and you're saying, when is daylight going to come? Some of you may look at the nighttime and say, it's been dragging on forever. Is daylight ever going to come? But what happens? If you're thinking about it, the longer the night drags on, you should be saying, that makes me more confident that daylight will come soon because I know I've been waiting and I know it's going to come. We look at how Jesus has not come back for 2,000 uh, some years and, and we say, oh, it's been so long. Does that mean that Jesus is going to return? Guys, daylight comes after night and the sunrise will come and Jesus will be here. And we need to be walking on this earth with that perspective. And in that perspective, oh, I skipped all the way to response time. It's not response time yet. With that, he tells us to use weapons of light rather than weapons of darkness. Because we are in this world in a fight. The world is fighting against us. Not just for money or whatever it is. They are fighting for hearts. And when you guys go out into the world, yes, people listen to your words about Jesus' love and such. They listen to your actions even more. They listen to your actions even more than they listen to your words. They watch how you live. So Paul says, don't use weapons of darkness. Specifically, he puts in three pairs, drunkenness and carousing. Now, does that mean that Paul is automatically saying, never carouse, never have any fun, drunkenness, never have any alcohol? I would say that the Bible does not tell you never have a single drop of alcohol ever. There are some people for whom alcohol, because of their history with that, or family history, what they've experienced with its abuse, or how they have grown up and always learned it, they're not comfortable with ever having a drop. And you know what? If you can't, don't have it, please. But Paul and people back then did sometimes drink that. But what Paul is absolutely saying is don't let it overcome you. Don't let your pursuit for fun, your pursuit for alcohol, your pursuit for any of that entertainment, such type of things, overcome you to the point where you lose your perspective and you're not able to think clearly and act rightly. Right? Does that make sense? We can all agree on that. He says... Don't go, avoid sexual immorality and sensuality. Does that mean that Paul says, have no, sorry to say this word in church, sex? 
Doesn't it mean don't have any of that? No. But what he is saying is seek that physical, emotional, spiritual intimacy with another person in the proper bounds that causes the greatest amount of love to be enjoyed between two people with the least amount of harm. And that means within the bounds of marriage. Not because God's a killjoy, but because he wants to protect you and he wants the best for you guys. And he says something up here that many of us in church are more comfortable with the first two pairs than the last two, but he also says, don't use discord and jealousy. This doesn't mean that you can't have any disagreement in the church, or jealousy means you can't have any inequality. But if you let your differences with another person stop you from loving one another, then you're way off base. Discord and jealousy take enjoyment and love and security, all of these things, and treat them as idols, as the thing that you pursue at the expense of everything else, including the people around you. And Paul says, don't do it. Instead, we need to be filled by love. Filled by the love of Jesus Christ that we have received and that we are showing to one another. He says, put on the weapons of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important for you and it's important for me. Because many of the people out in the world, they are not going to pick up their Bibles to find out what Jesus is like. If they want to know what Jesus is like, they are looking at you. They're looking at you. You are going to be the only Bible that a lot of people in this world read. And if so, when they look at you to see what Jesus is like, how effectively are we displaying Jesus to them effectively? How well are we doing that? Put on the Lord Jesus in this battle for the hearts of people and make no provision for the flesh. That doesn't mean you live an aesthetic life where you don't enjoy anything. But remember that you guys are not built for this world. You feel like you are. You feel like you're built for this world. And if you're missing out on things that there's no hope, there's no point apart from the thing the world has. But this world is not all that there is. Guys, forever is coming. How is that going to change the way that you respond to today? All right, questions or comments about this passage? Anyone? Questions or comments? Yes? Yeah, yeah. With immorality and sensuality and carousing and drunk, all that stuff. He includes discord and jealousy in that same list. Isn't that so interesting? We can sometimes think that we are doing really well as a church if we are avoiding the, the big obvious sins that we think of, but sometimes God's priority list is big. Because, to be honest, what church that is full of discord and jealousy is really going to be an effective, growing, healthy church, right? You need to you need to avoid all of the weapons of darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
Yes. Absolutely. When we think about everything through the perspective of um, a battle, to see what's best be done, you know, to do what's best, whatever the case. To, to worship the way that I think we should worship or to do a ministry the way I think we should do a ministry um, or whatever it may be. If our goal is to do the thing, whatever the cost, that's going to have ramifications. And it may not always be good. But when our motivation is that everyone involved experience the love of Christ the true deep love of Christ, which, by the way, does that mean excuse, like ignoring what's going on or something like that? If something's going on, that we just stay silent? No, that's not loving. Does that mean that we, we stomp, if we see someone doing something that's not healthy for them, that we stomp them down in the name of Jesus? No, that's not healthy either. But we are called to show the love of Christ in everything we do. And when we do that, man... We're doing really well. All right. Well, if you guys have any other questions or thoughts, um, I will be around during Sandwich Sunday. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, as, as you can probably tell, it's hard to turn me off once I, I start talking. So always, by the way, if you ask a question, I talk too long, just say, Adam, that's enough. Turn off that water nozzle and I'll, I'll quiet my mouth. That's fine. But if you have any questions, you can ask. Um, I hope that this continues on in conversations during Sandwich Sunday as well. And for now, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the authorities that you have placed in our lives. Those that you have placed over us from governments to to, to parents, to, to pastors, uh, to protect those people and help them to do right and encourage them to not do what's unhealthy and wrong. God, we also thank you for the way that you have given us the responsibility and the privilege of being an authority over others on the way that you allow us to speak into others' lives. God, as we do so, may we speak your love and your grace. Because it's so easy for us to speak anything but sometimes, especially in moments of frustration. But, but God, be in us shining the gospel to those that we are, are living with whether it's those that are in authority over us or those that we are in authority over. Help us to live in light of a certain and perfect future and not in light of today's broken world. God, we thank you for Sandwich Sunday and for this food that we are going to eat. We bless you. And we ask that we would be blessing you with all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.